Well, back in the late 18th century, when Charles IV was the king of Spain, he uh, looked into his not-too-distant future and rightly predicted that Napoleon Bonaparte was coming for him and that Napoleon would be very successful in that attempt. And so he gathered up the two most priceless treasures of Spain, his own antique clock collection and then, of course, the crown jewels. And he gave them to one of his servants and he said, look, what I want you to do with this is I want you to hide it somewhere in the castle, the idea being that if we ever recover the monarchy and if we ever recover the castle, we'll be able to recover these treasures. We don't want to lose them is the point. And so the servant took one of the treasures and he took it into one of the 365 different rooms in the castle and he hid it behind one of the walls in that room. And then he took the other treasure and he hid that in another of the 365 different rooms in the castle. And then in order to mark the two rooms that he hid the treasures in, he got out his scissors and he cut just a little bit of fabric from the drapery. And the reason that would mark it is because every one of the rooms was decorated differently, and so the idea is whoever retakes the castle can come back in, and if they're armed with these two you know, pieces of fabric, they can figure out what rooms the treasure is in. You get the point. Well, there was a little bit of a flaw in the plan, and the flaw was something like this. Napoleon came, Napoleon conquered, Napoleon took the crown, Napoleon took the castle, and Napoleon installed his brother Joseph, who ruled for a time... But then the, capture, or then the monarchy was recaptured by Spain, not by Charles, but by his son Ferdinand II, who came tooling back in with his two pieces of cloth. The problem is that Joseph Bonaparte fancied himself as somewhat of an interior decorator. <laughs> and he redecorated every room in the castle. So Ferdinand comes tooling in with his two swaths of cloth, and they're worthless. So he had to decide, I mean, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to systematically dismantle the castle looking for these two treasures, or am I just going to choose the castle over the treasures? He chose the castle over the treasures and just left the treasures dormant in the walls. And weeks turned into months and months into years and years into decades and decades into almost 200 years, and this story of the treasure hidden in the castle became like a myth that nobody was really sure whether or not to believe, you know? I mean, you can hear the tour guides, you know? And the, you know, legend has it that there's a treasure somewhere in the castle. And that's all that it was. Until a plumber, a couple of decades ago, was doing his plumbing work in the castle, and he poked a hole in the wall, and lo and behold, there was the antique clock collection. He found a treasure. And I tell you that story because I want you right now to begin thinking about treasure. I want you now to begin thinking about people who find treasure. And I want you primarily to think about the value of treasure. I mean, just think about that story for a second because in that story, we just have a regular guy, right? I mean, he's a regular guy. He's living his regular life. He's doing his regular every ordinary th day thing. He's not looking for treasure. He's not searching for treasure. Treasure's not even on his radar screen. We don't even know if he knew the legend. You know, maybe he had taken the tour. I don't know. Maybe not. All I know is he's needing to poke a hole in the wall to do his job. And in the midst of his regular everyday ordinary life, he comes upon a treasure, and you know that he's jazzed, don't you? I mean, you know that his heart is filled with joy. Everybody who finds a treasure's heart is filled with joy. Why? Because you know that it's valuable. But here's the question. How valuable? How much is it really worth? And who's qualified to say? So anyway, the plumber finds the treasure, right? The everyday guy is surprised by what he finds. But that's not always the way that it works either. I mean, sometimes it's found by people who are actually looking for treasure. I mean, you think, for example, about um, Howard Carter. 
this Egyptologist who was convinced, persuaded, totally sold by a lot of evidence that so many other people had completely disregarded that there was, in fact, one tomb of a pharaoh yet to be discovered in the Valley of the Kings. And so he convinced his buddy, this wealthy Englishman, to fund this dig, and the man's name was Lord Carnivon. And so he set aside all these funds, and Carter started doing his dig. You know, when he started it up in 1914, he had to take a big break for World War I. He came back on the backside, and then year one went by, and year two went by, and year three went by, and year four went by. Meanwhile, Lord Carnivon's watching the fund that he set aside at decreasing, and he's beginning to maybe think that, you know, maybe all these other people who disregarded this evidence that you think is convincing were right. Year five, year six... And he has a little meeting with Howard Carter and says, you know, maybe we need to pull the plug on this deal. I mean, you are just about out of cash, and yeah, I'm not buying it. And Howard Carter begged for one more season of digging. And he got what he wished for, and so he went back and with his team, and and they started digging near the already discovered tomb of Ramses VI. And as they're digging, they come across this ancient workman's hut, which you know, would probably be meaningful if it showed up in our backyard in Fort Lauderdale, but there it was just kind of like a thing, you know. It was not a big find or anything, so they moved it out of the way, and when they moved it out of the way, they saw the top stair of an otherwise completely buried staircase. And they thought, well, that's interesting. So they start excavating the staircase, and it took them all the way down to a door that bore the stamp of the Royal Necropolis, and they knew that they had found it. And so Howard Carter somehow patiently waited for Lord Carnivon to arrive, okay? Days go by, he's waiting, he's waiting, and finally this guy shows up, and they're all excited. Lord Carnivon's there with his daughter, Howard Carter's there, they go down the stairway, he shows them the royal seal, says, I I really think this is it, but I haven't opened it up yet, so I don't know. And they begin to poke a hole in the upper left-hand corner of the door until they get a hole that's just large enough for um, Howard Carter to stick his head and his shoulder and an arm with a candle through, in which is that's exactly what he does. And as he's waiting for his eyes to adjust, Lord Carnivon's like yanking on his pant leg going, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see anything? And Howard Carter, who had a flair for the dramatic, paused. Actually, I have no idea if he did that, but I would have. Because how many times does this happen in life? You know, it's like, well, uh... he said, yes, I see wonderful things. For he had found the treasure-filled tomb of King Tut, one of the most significant archaeological finds ever. You know, the reality about treasure is treasure is not found by everyone. It's not. But it is found by some people. Sometimes it's found by people who are not looking for it at all. It just, like, happens upon it, at least from their perspective. And sometimes it's found by people who are convinced by the evidence of what they have already seen, of what they have already found, that there must yet still be something more. There is a treasure out there somewhere, and they look until they find it. But in either case... Their hearts are always filled with joy. Why? Because they know that it's valuable. It's unbelievably valuable. But here's the question. How valuable is it? I mean, what is it really worth? And and how do you know? Who is it that's qualified to say? Well, as we continue our study of the kingdom parables of Jesus this morning, these stories in which he's like holding his kingdom up before us and he's unpacking it, he's unveiling it, he's revealing it, he's explaining it to each one of us, we come to two stories that Jesus tells involving two different guys 
who find a treasure that is far more valuable than any antique clock collection, than any tomb of any pharaoh, than any treasure that is yet to be found or that has ever yet been found in this world. In fact, add them all together, they pale in comparison. They find a treasure that represents the kingdom of God itself, okay? And they're filled with joy because they know it's valuable, but here's the question, how valuable is it? I mean, how much is it really worth, this kingdom of God? And who can say? Jesus, the man from heaven, the king of the kingdom, standing on planet earth, explaining the kingdom to us, tells us exactly how much it's worth. He gives us his appraisal, if you will, in these two stories, and he writes it with his own blood. And he calls every one of us to take his appraisal, to consider it carefully, and to compare it with the appraisal that we're writing with our lives. Jesus says this in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven, again, that's what we're studying, is like a treasure. So let's review for a second in case you've missed it. What is the kingdom of heaven? Because it's a lot of different things. I mean, the kingdom of heaven, for example, is the salvation that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is that thing, that bride of Christ that he purchased with his life and with his death and with his resurrection from the dead. It is being forgiven. It is being made whole. It is being made new. It's being made clean. It's everything that is ours when we come to Jesus and realize, A, I'm a sinner. B, that's a problem. C, God in grace has provided a solution, and it's him So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, it's like he's got this big table in front of it, and he takes that piece of the treasure and he goes, boom. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. It's more than that. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and what he also has in mind there, the next part of the treasure that he's putting on the big table for us to take a good look at, is his reign and his his rule in our lives. We don't receive Jesus merely as Savior. We receive him as Lord. We receive him as King. We're not just the objects of his mercy. We're the subjects of his reign. And he has a mission for us. And he has a vision for us. And he has a purpose for us. He has something for us to invest our lives in that lasts beyond this life. And that's his kingdom. We're to proclaim the message of his kingdom and we're to live out the message of his kingdom, the ethic. We're not only to tell people about Jesus and how to be forgiven of sins, we are to deal in a practical, get-your-hands-dirty way with the effects of sin in this world and in so doing, give this world that is mostly full of darkness and death concrete evidence of the existence of a kingdom of light and of life. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, he has all that in mind as well. But lastly, he also has in mind the final destination, and we've talked a little bit about that. He has in mind the new heavens and the new earth, the total transformation of this, as we've said, sin-stained, sorrow-filled, mostly filthy, mostly broken planet into ultimately a perfect place, a joy-filled place, a pure and un broken place, a place where God's will is done here, even as it's done in heaven. So Jesus comes and he says, look guys, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And he's sort of like collecting up all these little bits and pieces and he's laying them all up on a table before us to behold. He's like, this, this is like a treasure. So what is a treasure like? What are the people like who find a treasure? And what's its value? Because he doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us his appraisal. 
He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and then he adds, hidden in a field. And that sounds weird to us because you're like, who would hide their treasure in a field? And the answer is, everybody in that day, pretty much, and for hundreds and thousands of years before, and for hundreds and even thousands of years after. The reality is Jesus is standing in what we know of as the nation state of Israel or Palestine. It is a region of the world that has, as long as it's existed, been in dispute invaded by army after army, nation after nation. And every time these armies would come in, whatever peoples were living there at the time would take whatever treasures they had and they'd hide them. They'd hide them in the wall. They'd hide them in the trees. They'd hide them in caves. They'd hide them under rocks. They'd bury them in their field, hoping to survive and to be able to recover them. But they didn't all survive. I mean, many of them were killed or they were taken captive as slaves back to whatever nation's land was, you know, that had invaded them. And sometimes they just had a bad map. They're like Ferdinand walking into the castle with his two swaths of cloth. Like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something's changed, you know. So it wasn't necessarily all that uncommon for treasure to be found, for it had been buried there hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before. William Thompson, who was a famous missionary in the late 18th century, told of a time of being in the city of Sidon, and he said that some guys were working in a garden. Okay, picture this. And they came across two huge copper pots full of 8,000 gold coins bearing the image of Alexander the Great and his dad, Philip of Macedonia, that had been in the ground for 2,200 years. Working in the garden... I mean, it makes you want to work outside. If I could be guaranteed that I'd find that, I'd work outside too, man. But he's speaking their language. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And so the picture Jesus is painting is of a plowman. He's a guy that a field owner hired to plow his field. He's a regular guy, is the point, doing his regular everyday stuff, living his regular life. He's like the plumber in the castle. And he's plowing his field, you know, and it's hot, so he's sweating. His feet are searing. His legs are aching. He's walking behind some stinky animal, plowing row after row after... I mean, if you hate your job, just envision this. Row after row after row. Can you imagine the monotony? When all of a sudden, as he's plowing along, he's kind of awakened, if you will, startled maybe, because the plow actually hits something in the ground that's solid. And maybe it makes a noise. Maybe there's a shattering noise. We don't know what it is. But we know whatever it was, it was enough to make him stop. And get down in the dirt, hands and knees, and start, you know, trying to figure out what the deal is. Because here's the thing. Not everybody finds treasure, okay? But occasionally somebody does. And sometimes even by surprise. And sure enough, his heart starts racing as he's digging this thing up. And he's realizing that it's a container of something. I don't know if it's a big copper pot full of 8,000 coins or what it is. But all I know is he keeps digging this thing up. And he gets more and more excited until he finally unearths it and gets the lid off of it. And he looks into it. And it might be gold. It might be gems. We have no idea what it was. But Jesus says it was treasure. And he's jazzed. He's excited. Because he knows that it's valuable. But how valuable is it? It represents the kingdom of God, doesn't it? And Jesus, the man from heaven, the God-man is going to tell us, every one of us, how valuable it is for each one of us. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then reburied is the idea and covered up. And I know that gives some of you some ethical pause. 
because you want to go, whoa, wait a minute, you know, you should have dug this up, and the right thing for you to do would be to take it to the owner of the field, and, you know, I mean, maybe he'll give you a kickback, you'll cut 10% off, and he'll give it, you know. But really, I mean, you, you don't just rebear. Yeah, you do. That's okay. In those days, this was not unethical. They understood, again, that these treasures were oftentimes there for hundreds and even thousands of years. The rabbis had ruled on this stuff, so don't let it throw you. Jesus is not painting the picture of an unethical guy, but he does need to buy the field. If he wants to establish undisputed legal title, he has to buy the field. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Because that's where Jesus comes to us and he says, okay, guys, here's the deal. Kingdom of God, like a treasure, buried in a field, guy comes across it, and now he's going to have to tell you how much it's worth. What is it worth? What does Jesus teach us? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then what? In his joy. In his joy. He waited a couple of years and then we kind of got around. No. No, it's so valuable that there's an urgency about it. It's so valuable there is a drop everything intensity about it. It is so valuable that this guy covers it up and he does not waste any time. He does not plow any more rows. He doesn't call his wife. He doesn't, you know, pass go, collect $200. He does none of that stuff. He immediately goes out and sells some very small portion of what he has so he can nickel and dime the feed, you know, the field owner and, you know, work the best angle that he can and does none of those things. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and it's so valuable that in his joy, not begrudgingly, he goes out and right away sells everything. He sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because this treasure known as the kingdom of God demands everything. It is so valuable that it calls for everything. It's so remarkable that it deserves our everything, not our spare things. See, Jesus is writing an appraisal. He's writing an appraisal for the kingdom that he's lived, died for. He's writing it in blood and he's saying, look, you're writing an appraisal too, whether you realize it or not. You're writing it not with what you say, but by what you do. How do they compare? So Jesus collects up all these ideas, forgiveness, salvation, grace, mercy, all of these things, vision, mission, purpose, new heaven, new earth, puts it all up on the table and says, guys, it's like, it's like a treasure. It's not found by everyone. Oh, but it's found by some people. Some who never suspected they'd ever find it. Some who were quite stunned they're even sitting here. And others who found it at the end of a lifelong search that left them wanting for something more. And something in their heart kept driving them to look because they just knew there had to be something more. And it is so valuable that it joyfully calls for everything. But he's not done. Because he then adds the second story. He says again, meaning let me nuance it for you. Let me tell you another story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. See, unlike the plowman, this guy's actually looking. Get the point? He's looking for that pearl. He's in search of fine pearls. And unlike the plowman also, this guy is fabulously wealthy. This is not just some mere jewelry store owner. And I don't say that to disparage mere jewelry store owners. 
I'm saying that Jesus' audience would have understood that this was a rare man. He was a wholesaler of pearls, and pearls in that day and for many years prior and after were considered the single most valuable objects in existence. More than diamonds, more than golds, they were the most precious things. This is a man who moved and lived and did business within the pearl sheikdoms of Persia, and who then became a supplier of pearls to jewelry stores all over the place. He had a pearl empire, is the picture. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like that kind of a merchant in search of fine pearls. He's looking, who's invited into the tent of the pearl sheikh, and then who, after endless greetings and ritual formalities, is then finally invited further back into the tent of the pearl sheikh, who then pulls out a little silk purse, And he says, I want to show you something precious. And he very gingerly takes out the pearl that this man had been looking for all of his life. It's perfect. It's beautiful. So he's found the treasure. How valuable is it? Because it represents the kingdom. So what does Jesus teach us by his example? He says the kingdom of heaven is like that kind of a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value waited a couple of years and then when he got around, no, no, come on, I mean, that's ridiculous. Dropped everything and went and joy here is implied. He went and joyfully sold some small portion of what he had and then he nickled and dimed with the guy and he tried to, you know, just none of that. It's crazy. He went and sold all that he had and he bought it because this treasure known as the kingdom, well, it's just that valuable. It's that important. It's that amazing. It's that demanding. It's that deserving. Joyfully, we're to give everything. So he collects it up, Jesus does, you know, his kingdom, salvation, grace, mercy, vision, mission, eternal life, new heavens, new earth. And he piles it up on the table and he says, guys, take a good look. Because it's like a treasure, it's not something that will be found by every person. But it will be found by many people. It will. It has been. And it's not always found by people who are looking for it. Sometimes you're just kind of cruising through life and it's like all of a sudden, wham, there it is. Never suspected it. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe it is one of those deals where life kind of left you wanting, you know. I mean, the evidence seems to indicate that there must yet be something more. And so you continued the search and continued the search, even if you didn't know that you were looking for Christ and his kingdom. Christ and his kingdom is it. And it always fills your heart with joy because... It's valuable, but how valuable is it? Because in these stories, Jesus has written his appraisal. He says it is so valuable that it is worthy joyfully of your everything. Now take that appraisal and compare it to the one you're writing. I think that we tend to look at God and Christ and the kingdom as some little portion of our life. It's a part of our life, but it's not our life. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. 
And so we give it our spare. We give it our spare time. We give it our spare change. We give it our spare creative imagination and, and, and entrepreneurial ingenuity. We give it our spare this and our spare. Yeah, I guess I have a little bit to give here and I have a little bit, you know, maybe I can do that. No, I don't know. And Jesus is like, no. Look at the treasure. It's worthy, joyfully, of everything. So I would close this morning by asking you to compare the appraisals. His and yours. What is it that you give to the kingdom and what do you hold back and why? Let him sift you a little bit for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom which is worthy of all things. Lord, we thank you that there exists in this universe something worthy of our lives, of all that we have, of all that we own, of all that we are. Lord, we praise you that there exists a kingdom and a king who is worthy of that. I pray that you might impress that on us. Lord, cause us to look at what we give our lives to, at the appraisals of what we really value that we write and that we're writing now. And I pray, Lord, that we might be so captured by the beauty of Jesus and of his kingdom, seeing the value that we joyfully give whatever it takes to most fully engage in it. And Lord, I pray also for those here today who are yet to find the treasure which is Christ. And I pray, God, that you would lead them inescapably to him. Lord, do not hide your treasure, but share it with each one of us that we might bring you glory. We pray all these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.